I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I really can't but stay. baby, it's cold outside. Got to go but away. baby, it's cold outside. Welcome to episode 81 of The Hilo, the weekly current affairs and pop culture podcast brought to you by journalist Dolly Alderton and Pandora Sykes. The song you hear is a festive nod to the start of the season and also an editorial signpost for what's coming up this episode. I would like to apologise for the horrible sound of my voice. The timber. Oh, it's horrible. I told Pandora this morning I sound like an ogre. (laughs) That voice note that I sent you, you must admit, was harrowing when I woke up this morning. I was breathing like Ray Winstone. (laughs) So harrowing. Um, Also, I would like to say a very big thank you to Marks and Spencers, everyone's favourite food shop, who has sent us almost a lifetime supply, I would say, of their best ever prawn sandwich, which we were talking about on the Hilo last episode, that is so unbelievably delicious. That you'd had half by 12.22. Oh yeah, I've already gobbled up half. What's been going on in the world, Pandora? I'm so glad you asked. There's a man in Somerset who's turned the entire front of his house into a baby shark-themed Christmas light display for his kids. And that's this week's baby shark update. I do I do think that that's not the last that we've heard of it. I'm still getting tweets and DMs from people about baby shark stuffed toys, baby shark Christmas displays. It really feels like the baby shark thing's going to go on and on for the high-low until it's, next it's Christmas. It's a really nice Christmas light display, actually. <laughs> I really enjoyed it. It's very jolly. Uh, and it comes via our official meme correspondent, Oliver Tritton. We've set up a meme... Well, when you say we, who set it up? Ollie has set up a meme... Um, sharing platform in the form of a three-man whatsapp group that i'm really enjoying so thank you very much for that ollie <laughs> he does he does contribute quite a lot of the uh, high lows topics i have more the low than the high but we love him for Ooh, it quite bitchy <laughs> feeling threatened i've got a gift for you Clement. <laughs> oh have you yeah it's a hessian sack oh my god where'd you get that from got it made it's a, it's a, it's the ye old mailbag. Oh my, <laughs> for our, sorry, for listeners. I was like, where did you find one that said Hilo HQ on oh it? Oh my god! <laughs> so this is an actual it's old ye old mailbag. mailbag. It says North Pole Express Mail Service. I could only get a festive one for the Hilo <laughs> HQ. Who got? Did Ollie get that? No, I did. Oh, it's for you. Thank you, babe. Because always saying. Oh my god! Can I... we get people to now write letters, and I can actually take them out of the old email bag? I think we should give out our address. If we give out our agent's address, who is Grace O'Leary at Independent Talent. We can then actually put them in the old email bag and I can read them out like Blue Peter every week. If anyone wants to write to us rather than send an email, we will um, provide the address at which you can send your letters in the show notes. Oh my God, And I love then this they so will much. get sent to me. I will put them in the mailbag for Dolly. I'll put it on the chair that waits for her at the podcast <laughs> record and then she can dig in. <laughs> Thank you for my, my old email bag. <laughs> How is New York, Dolly, aside from obliterating your voice, body, spirit? Dolly sent me a message saying, I can no longer party like I'm on a three-day Hindu. It was fab, actually. We had, I went with my friend Max, took me as a belated 30th birthday present because he lives in Washington and we did all the New Yorky stuff we drank Manhattans we ate a lot What's of brunch Manhattan? oh just a lot of booze <laughs> do you not even know bourbon Ugh. and one of those nice little cherries at the oh, bottom oh maraschino cherry yeah, I love those love I used those. to eat those by the um oh god you'll be like classic Pandora <laughs> I used to eat these by like the pot oh, I thought you were gonna say I used to eat these by the stables at my school <laughs> By the stables, you get maraschino cherries in the states. They're from like a supermarket. <laughs> <said> typical band. <laughs> think I've ever talked about. Sorry, a no, you haven't. That was unfair. Um, yeah, so we drank Manhattan's, ate brunch, <laughs> yeah. did a lot of shopping. I went to the Warhol exhibition at the Whitney, cool. um, which was amazing. I went and saw the big tree at Thirty Rock. 
Yeah, the enormous tree that's the the big finale of Home Alone 2 Lost in New York. Oh, the Christmas tree. Oh, I thought the you Christmas meant like tree. an oak tree. No, no. <laughs> no, the big Christmas tree. And actually, Max is my backup plan if everything goes very, very wrong and I don't fall in love. So it was good to have a holiday to see what life will be like for both of us if the worst comes to the worst. And is it surviving? Totally, totally pleasant and lovely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we discussed it at the end. I was like, this we could do this, couldn't we? And he was like, yeah, definitely. So, yeah. You're in your twin beds. <laughs> yeah, totally. We could have a, like a, you know, lavender marriage. Although it's not gay, I shouldn't say that. A sexless marriage. Yeah, I think you'd fare well in one of those. <laughs> Pandora House Paris. <laughs> I met some French Hilo fans. Shout out to Fiona, who told me that she was... The biggest fan of the Ilo in oh, France. sexy. Sounds so much nicer like that, the Ilo. The Ilo. It was a really interesting weekend to be there. It was the fourth, I think, weekend of riots. Um, quite exhilarating to witness. And I don't mean in like a, officer, officer, put your bad in a way kind of way. <laughs> I mean like witnessing a, um, a political moment and mm. not talking about Brexit, which mm. was pretty joyful. And it was really interesting talking to friends who were who live in Paris um, and are French <clears throat> as even within the same marriage, they were vociferously in disagreement about where they stood on it. So in a nutshell, for anyone that's a bit confused about what's going on in Paris, the Gilets which literally translates as yellow vests, and Amazon have apparently sold out of <laughs> generic oh, really? yellow vests. Started protesting a month ago about fuel prices, and that sort of segued into a general protest about taxes um, and how they were too high for the working class, and climate change has also kind of hopped onto the side. So it's been co-opted by quite a few different movements. Most of the protesters are peaceful, but there are violent strands with cars being set alight, shops bashed in. There's quite a lot of anti-Semitism about the whole thing. Mm. There were 8,000 protesters in Paris on Saturday and 8,000 police officers, literally like for like, and then 89,000 police officers drafted over France. And it was kind of astounding to watch from our hotel balcony. I took a video as just these massive police fans after police van just going past on the way to, to the Place de la Republique we weren't in we were kind of the opposite end of town very deliberately but the police in full riot gear sort of stormtroopers with these massive shields and 70 massive vans going past and it was kind of you know it's intimidating to see there's the they, there was the smell of people throwing stuff and mm. when any protesters came past you know you were encouraged to stay inside because there's a lot of tear gas um, but the clean-up on Sunday was so impressive. You would have never been able, aside from some new graffiti, to tell that there was anything going on the day before. So it was a real tale of two cities in one city because if you looked at the BBC News, and I was watching the rolling news whilst being in Paris, mm. and they were saying, Paris under siege, and I was like, God, can we go outside? And then half of the town around kind of Montmartre and Marais was just completely... Business as usual. Jolly and lovely. Yeah. yeah. You know, me vintage shopping, eating lots of lovely food. And then the other half was literally carnage. Mm. Um, and I really did eat all the food. And all that's the, what you do in Paris. All the French onion soup, all the croque monsieur, oh, all the scallop risotto. Obviously went to all the Chez Genou. Chez Genou, best All the croissants I could find. I feel like Knickers. Who is Knickers? He's the Hilo spirit animal. He's a giant Frisian cow who is six foot four inches tall he's even taller than you he is and he weighs 1,400 kilograms he's so big that the abattoir won't process him he's been saved from the jaws of death by his own bulk and I think that's something oh, to aspire to this Christmas I agree yeah do they know why he's so big I haven't looked into that but I do love that he's called Knickers it's too much scallop risotto like, who called him Knickers <laughs> Since we last convened, Ada Hegerberg, a Norwegian soccer player, has been applauded for keeping her cool in a daft sexist interlude. Honoured with the Ballon d'Or Award, she was asked to twerk on stage by DJ Martin Solvig and she issued a cut. No. And there's been a lot of coverage of that video. Good for her. Yeah, he good wouldn't for have her. asked he wouldn't have asked a male athlete to do that. Mm. South Korea has shut down its largest dog meat slaughterhouse um, after pressure from animal rights campaigners. And, pretty bum out, the number of hospital admissions for mental health disorders linked to cocaine use has trebled, almost trebled My in the God. past decade. Official figures show. I was interested by this as 
drinking, as we've discussed before, has decreased in young people. And I would, yeah. I, I was going to say I would imagine associated drug use, but actually sometimes it can be almost converse, can't it? But then it comes back to the fact that wellness is a largely middle class endeavour. Um, I also wonder <coughs> if it's not a Gen Z thing, but it's actually our generation. Yeah, I wonder if it's our generation because I think I'd like to know more about it because I don't know how you can really describe yourself as being a super woke social justice warrior. So I do wonder if that's at odds with the general reported social politics mm. of Generation Z. Mm. I think millennials <laughs> are totally fine with that contradiction and the hypocrisy. In fact, I can say with full assurance they don't <laughs> mind at all. So I think, yeah, I, I would be interested to know what bracket... Uh, that, that that's in because when we interviewed um, Scarlett Curtis mm. about this a while back something we didn't put in the interview because we had time constraints but something Scarlett said is that um, of people that she knows of her age they'll often use drugs in a kind of measured and minimal way to replicate a sort of drunkenness but without having to deal with the hangover the next day well that when I was reading that Guardian piece about the rise in the sort of date rape drug yeah. and the party drug that's why a lot of the girls that were doing G were doing it because it doesn't have any hangover. Yeah. The next day. Yeah. Um, also, though, a slightly positive skew to those stats are that mental health is much more talked about. People mm. are much better at identifying problems in themselves and others, I think, when it comes to mental health because our knowledge of it is so much better. Mm. So I wonder if hospital admissions have also gone up in the last 10 years because people are hearing more mm. about mental health and thinking, God, I've been feeling like that that's obviously not a great thing mm. and then going to hospital or have you know what I yeah, mean having yeah. more conversations and actually taking action based being on more, those feelings being more aware of it and some trivia for you via the week guess how much a McDonald's hamburger was when it arrived in the UK just the hamburger when it arrived in the UK in 1974 it will be like the sort of thing my dad says when he's talking about buying houses in the 70s like three guineas or something I hate it when people go really far the other way. Like, guess how cold it is today? Minus 80. No, but you know when they... Shillings or whatever they No, use. it's normal pennies. Now try again. <laughs> okay. 70p. 15. Really? Oh, good. There we go. That was what I was looking for. Wow, 15p. Yeah. It's not that anymore. Well, it's 99p now, isn't it? Is it? Don't know. <laughs> anyway. Snoop Dogg was awarded a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Technically, he won this in November, but this is too good to miss. I wanted to read out his speech as I thought it was quite dolly, his uh, acceptance <laughs> speech. I want to thank me for believing in me. For God's sake. I want to thank me for doing all this hard work. I want to thank me for having no days off. I want to thank me for never quitting. I want to thank me for always being a giver and trying to give more than I receive. I want to thank me for... <laughs> I want to thank me for trying to do more right than wrong. I want to thank me for just being me at all times. Snoop Dogg, you're a bad motherfucker. <laughs> That's what I said at the National Book Awards, actually. <laughs> um, beautifully humble and down-to-earth words from Mr Dog there. That's not his surname. Here's Mr Dog. First name Snoop, second name Dog. <laughs> An even more provocative speech was delivered this week by Lena Dunham. There will be an episode of The High Low where we don't talk about the continuing saga of Lena Dunham. But sadly, today isn't that day, particularly as a lot of you have messaged and tweeted us about it. For anyone unaware of this uh, particular facet of the story, Lena Dunham guest wrote the editor's letter for the latest issue of The Hollywood Reporter and in it addressed an incident that took place over a year ago in which she defended girls writer Murray Miller who'd been accused by actress Aurora Piranau by saying she had inside information that assured her that Aurora was lying. In the letter she admitted that she had lied, that the inside information was made up. To Aurora, she wrote, you have been on my mind and in my heart every day this year. I love you. She continued to write, I will work to right that wrong. In that way, you have made me a better woman and a better feminist. She also said she had internalised the dominant male agenda that asks to defend it no matter what, protect it no matter what, and that today her job is to excavate that part of myself to create a new cavern inside me where a candle stays lit and illuminates the, the wall behind it where these words are written, I see you, Aurora, I hear you, Aurora, I believe you, Aurora. 
To conclude, she says she knows people will say she's just trying to curry public favour, to which she says, that's okay though, I stopped thinking that was an option for me somewhere around 2014, and that's some kind of freedom. I mean, I think it's good she publicly apologised, but I think it goes down a slightly obscure route when she talks about lighting a candle in a cavern of how much she loves Aurora. I think it's just terrible. I think it is, like, really, 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 really bad. I think there's just... It's extraordinary to me that, as you said, like, you know, publicly apologising and admitting a wrong, you know, there is something to be said for that, and that is to be applauded. That's a very brave action. But I don't like that she... that The way that she referenced... You know, well, I don't care. I can say anything now because I can't curry favour since 2014. Like, she's this sort of suicide bomber for reputation. I just, I, I don't. That's an interesting way of putting it. Almost like she, it's almost like she feels destructive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is. I almost wonder though. I, do you think she wrote this after that interview with the cut? I think she did. Yeah, I wonder if she's getting a kick out of this kind of downward yeah yeah that she's just plummet. that she yeah, yeah so, so she needs to just like she needs to just have some time out stop giving her letters mm. like stop it's actually kind of rank to be honest to when women who clearly are in a slightly or anyone not just women are in altered you know, and vulnerable yeah headspace strange like, just, space. stop letting them hang themselves while you know i do to- i totally agree and i <clears> actually <throat> think what's so funny is when i listen to that you know i talked about the interview that i really liked with her with Dax Shepard on The mm-hmm. Armchair Expert. She does have these amazing moments for self-awareness and something she said that she's learned um, in that interview because he asked her about the whole, the kind of meme of like Lena Dunham saying these abhorrent things and then having to do these in- incredibly like flowery apologies and something that she said that she's learned both in her personal life and in her public, and in her public life is that her way of expressing remorse is with a like hugely verbose and emotional um long-winded apology and she's had to realize that a lot of people that's like disingenuous it's disingenuous it's insincere and it's actually just slightly making it about you like it's 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 unnecessary so it's weird that she has these moments of clarity and yet will 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 still write and say something like this. I think it just comes back again to the lack of um barriers the way she conducts herself and I think the reason why she makes uh, some people feel so uncomfortable is there's a claustrophobia about it you know the the lighting yeah, of a yes, candle in yeah, her cavern I, I totally love agree. you Aurora I hate you Aurora. if I if I was Aurora I'd just think oh my god just back off yeah just exactly say just say you believe me and let's leave it I totally agree and what's so strange about it as well is a journalist and I were messaging about this and said journalist found out that her PR is a crisis management PR that's the same as Johnny Depp's that GQ interview, um, Hawthorne, a kind of corporate, I think, crisis management. Yeah, I mean, more and more celebrities in the digital. How age. can this be the advice of someone who is managing a crisis? I cannot get my head around it. Maybe she's employed to deal with the aftermath, not the. <laughs> maybe she's only a suffix, not the prefix. But she, I think that she's been in Advised. situ for a while. So it's all these things that we're seeing Lena Dunham do. That is coming. That's a crisis That's management. That's a crisis management. It's absolutely mind-blowing. Maybe the crisis manager is on um, work experience. This is, a tra- <laughs> this is a trainee scheme. Or maybe moving- she's on annual leave over the last couple of months. <laughs> moving on from our Lena Dunham segment of this week. It's a bit like Baby Shark, isn't it? Uh, what's in ye old mailbag this week? In your email bag, <laughs> I'm, I'm punching my hand in. <laughs> punching? You punched your hand in and what have you found? Lots of thoughts from listeners on the subject of emotional labour. This is from Olivia. What comes to mind when envisioning the term emotional labour is the role often expected of women when resolving matters of the heart. I can't tell you the amount of times that I, as a woman, have been expected to or have felt required to be the resolver, the analyzer, the overthinker in romantic relationships. God, that's so true. I find breaking down the generalised walls of male emotions is a task reserved for women, communicating through difficulties, breakdowns and ups and differences of opinion. You name it, I've done it. 
Sure, a man will often come to the table once conversation is initiated, but I find that onus is often on the woman to initiate these discussions and do the feeling. Think, okay, but how does that make you feel? Why are you really upset about this? What would make you feel better about this? What can we do to make this better? Is this an experience exclusive to me? Based on the experience of the other women in my life, I think not. Does it have something to do with our patriarchal conditioning to be reasonable, amicable, or empathetic? Probably. Further, would it be somewhat alleviated if we, as a society, promoted a man's capability for vulnerability and removed stigma around emotional modern men? Hopefully. I think that's a very well-observed email. What have you been enjoying this week? I've been enjoying series two of The Marvellous Mrs Maisel. Oh, yeah, you love that. Which I totally love. Uh, For anyone not familiar, it's on Amazon Prime and it's a kind of period piece set in the late 50s about a kind of perfect Jewish housewife who lives on the Upper West Side of Manhattan and has everything until one day her husband comes home and tells her that he's leaving her for his secretary and she has to start again um, make a new life herself and she starts talking on stage about her difficulties and the pain she's been through and she gains momentum very quickly as a stand-up comedian a New York stand-up comedian it's so so brilliant if you're a fan of this period of the clothes of the music my god the soundtrack is so so good there's a lot of Blossom Deary played in the first two episodes who I love and I actually have to say this series I think the budget must have just tripled because Panda you would die for the interiors and the cinematography and the wardrobe it's just okay I'll give it a go it's so beautiful and they do lots of amazing location shootings in Paris and in the Catskills it's just a perfect period piece it's like watching um like a a really high budget modern version of a Barbra Streisand musical it's so warm and stylish and I just love it especially I'm going to go home and watch some episodes tonight because it's like a total hug um, of a program and actually this series is much more politicized and looks a lot more at the at the kind of gender politics of the 50s um, and that kind of seeps into it giving it a kind of more darker feel so I'm loving that is that when Mad Men was the 50s yeah How kind, does kind it of turn of turn compare with um, so Mad Men is that probably exactly the same time late 50s going into early 60s does it feel like the same time yes it's tonally very different but it feels in terms of wardrobe the way that women have to present the way that women are spoken to the bubbling frustrations of women at home um, it's it's yeah it's kind of a similar theme park and it's just like nothing else that's on TV at the moment. I love it. Um, I also read an old New Yorker piece that I'd never read before um, by Nora Ephron, which is about her relationships with cookbooks. Oh, you must have loved that. Yeah, my friend Luke sent it to me, who is one of the three male Hilo listeners, so thank you very much, Luke. Um, and it's her going through... It's just... It's like a platonic ideal of a Nora Ephron piece, and it was such a reminder to me of why she is this hero of mine who I talk about so much, because it's her, it's her taking something seemingly trivial, which is cookbooks, and then using that as a way to get into her stories of her growing up stories of her various marriages stories of um women that she idolized when she was younger who kind of imparted culinary wisdom to her you know stories of a of a certain social scene that changed as she got older it's just gorgeous and it's a reminder as well of i think i forget with nora efron because her prose is so important to me and they're so powerful to me i think i often forget how clean they are her prose she's not an over writer but somehow she imbues these kind of often very simple sentences with so much truth and character and style and flair and panache and heart and bravery and playfulness so this is just one kind of throwaway line from it that i loved just before i moved to new york two historic events had occurred the birth control pill was invented and the first julia child cookbook was published as a result everyone was having sex and when the sex was over you cooked something so it's full of that kind of pithy observation and um yes classic efron so i'll link to that in the show notes Finally, I listened to Nish Kumar on Adam Buxton, who is a very brilliant comedian. And it's a really far-reaching conversation talking about uh, a lot of really fascinating things. There's a particularly good chat on 
um, seeing your music heroes live. He's a massive music geek and he has an extensive knowledge of um, various artists that I'm interested in, such as Dylan and Hendrix and Prince. And, and he talks about kind of what the experiences are of seeing those artists live getting much much older he does a very good bob dylan impression in it <laughs> later bob dylan he also talks about hannah gadsby and nanette and it was so refreshing to hear a male comedian talk about uh that show and and hannah gadsby in such an effusive way and he said that it's been frustrating to him in the conversation around um that show how mm. a lot of male comedians have have said well, it's not comedy. It's not comedy. And that's actually something Lolly Adafopi said to, her, to me when I interviewed her about comedy, is that we've got to really move away from this idea of comedy being this, like, sacred, ancient art form for which there's, like, only one way that you can do it. It's, like, these very specific rules. It's just nonsense. And he was talking about how he thinks it's good that the genre is being, you know, explored and bent into, you know, different shapes to suit different modern audiences. There could be a spectrum. At one half, you can have lag gags, and at the other end, exactly. you can have really powerful laughing every 30 seconds as opposed to every five. Yeah. And maybe you're laughing at things because they're horrific and shocking and important yeah. rather than, like, I don't know, someone put their testicles on your shoulder. Yeah. Oh, don't want to go to comedy gig with you. Uh, so, yeah. Don't, was... I'll put my testicles <laughs> on your shoulder. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, that was a, a refreshing conversation to hear. But I loved most was him talking about free speech and no platforming and censorship. And he's so, so intelligent on the subject. And he says that it's not as black and white often as, as you know, supposed liberals or supposed conservatives might have you believe. And he said, look, on the whole, I'm against no platforming, but we also have to look at, the argument where people say if you give an idiot a platform they hang themselves and he used the example of Trump in the run up to the election and he said look he still he still got in so I don't know if that argument washes I don't know if it's as clear cut as that and he also uses an example of the Ku Klux Klan he's like look that's white supremacy like that's that's not an opinion it's not something to be debated it's wrong um so I you know I've still got lots of questions. I still don't know how much of that I subscribe to, but it was just so enlightening hearing someone so clever just really dig into all those various nuances. Instinctively, I'm always against no platforming, but having seen the way that Trump and Brexit have happened, largely by this kind of idealised version of debate that you just have two sides kind of talking things through and going at it. I mean, Donald Trump was humiliated at the debates. He was humiliated. And it didn't matter. All that mattered was the fact that he was receiving blanket coverage on CNN. Oh, that sounds brilliant. I can't wait to listen to that episode. What have you been enjoying, Panda? I read the most incredible debut piece of fiction by Rosie Price called What Red Was. Pandora literally messaged me saying, I think this is the best debut fiction I've ever read. I'm just, I'm, I'm in awe. I'm still in awe of it. I still think about it all the time. I'm not going to get into it too much now because I hope we'll be able to have a proper deep dive on it when it's out in May 2019. But if you like David Nichols, Tessa Hadley, Elizabeth Day, Meg Wallitzer, Donna Tart, people who are really lyrical and it's almost spare um, about the emotional, the filial, the familial, um, but there's also like a massive punch to this a central trauma which I've never seen in this kind of fiction pre-order this book it's fucking exceptional to be honest and she was 25 when she wrote it Ugh. which is a fun fact to make us feel depressed about ourselves <laughs> I've been watching Babies Their Wonderful World on the BBC which is a series about the psychology of children so the BBC have created this sort of lab to do all sorts of cognitive tests on babies Lucy Mangan was very dismissive of the efficacy of any of these um, tests. But I found it really interesting, actually, the kind of things it Ill illuminated. In particular, you know, we all have, like, mega fears about screen time with children. Mm -hmm. They had six children, three of which did use... Three toddlers used screens, and three, you know, screens were banned. And they got them to do various tests, like their balance, walking in a straight line, um, 
their fine motor skills and their pincer movements and the children that use screens their fine motor skills were better and they really? were, and and in terms of balance and everything like that physical they were exactly the same as children who hadn't used screens um that's good to know as sadie's peppa pig years come hurtling towards you i know you. I, do you know i wonder i wonder when i'll cave because sometimes it is incredible seeing the way babies react to a telly like if if the telly's on and she is in the they will just what, stare entranced. yeah i can see why it is the world's best babysitting tool <laughs> yeah um but no it's a really interesting program about um yeah just the psychology of children and nature versus nurture that old chestnut yeah um and there's a very interesting bit and i think it's the second episode about um racial bias and whether that forms from a young age or if it's something that's you kind of pick up as you get older so that That's is really interesting on the bbc i was blown away by a pretty shocking interview with mel b by simon hattonstone for the guardian to publicize her new tell-all autobiography she's actually written it with the journalist louise gannon she revealed in depth her abusive marriage to her ex-husband stephen belafonte and there's this very sad like yeah, shocking bit where she explains to Simon Hattonstone how she tried to obliterate her husband from her body after they broke up because she was so disgusted and haunted by their relationship. Um, when they were together, she got a tattoo down her side that said, Stephen, till death do us part, you own my heart. And Simon Hattonstone asks her if she's had it lasered mm. since. And she says, no, I got it cut out. I was put under for it. And I said to the doctor, give me the ugliest scar ever because I want it to be a reminder that that ugly person is cut out of my life. And he also says that he read that she had vaginal rejuvenation surgery after leaving Belafonte. And she says, no, that's not quite right. They scraped the inside of my vagina and they put new tissue in. It's almost like, these are her words, by the way, because I understand that these are quite controversial words. It's almost like a rape victim would do. Essentially, you want to scrub yourself clean. It's a, I, I haven't read a celebrity profile no. like that. There's some really like lovely and uplifting bits. You know, as Simon Hattinson says, have you ever like been in love? And she goes, oh yeah, I've been treated like a queen by people. Peter Andre, she was like, he was a wonderful lover, asked before he could kiss me. Um, Max Beasley, Eddie Murphy, who she says was the love of her life. God, what a who's who of... Yeah, she's also... 90s trivia. She's Max also... Beasley. Um, on her father's deathbed, she told him, I'm leaving Stephen, and she slowly started to regain contact with all of her family, which was completely Aww. broken um, during her marriage. And her mother and her sister were very public in the news about how they felt like they'd lost her. And there's a lovely bit where Simon Hassan says, are you broke? And she says, oh, no, no, no. She's out running buckets at the moment. <laughs> and she's lovely about her children and she's lovely about how she loves being a Spice Girl. She says, there's only five of us in the world. Who mm -hmm. can say I've been a Spice Girl? Mm -hmm. And she's very honest and funny about, he asks her if she fights. She's like, oh my God, me and Victoria fight all the time. They're on a uh, Spice Girls group email. <laughs> um, anyway, it's completely amazing. Speaking of um, celebrity profiles, have you seen that car crash of an interview with Vanessa Paradis in the Sunday Times? No. I won't spoil it. You'll enjoy it. Let's just say Vanessa is not a willing participant mm. and that Chris Ealy is not a happy interviewer of that, <laughs> that interlude. I adored... I love interviews like that. Yeah. I adored, and Dolly, this is made for you, Mrs. Wilson on BBC Oh, I've, so many people have told me to watch this. Starring Ruth Wilson, playing her grandmother, who found out that her husband, so Ruth Wilson's grandfather, was a serial bigamist after he died. It's a brilliantly contained performance. There is so much of the spirit of the age, you know, the stiff mm. upper lip, mm. grin and bear it, when there's this amazing bit that I think will stick in a lot of people's minds, where they are told that um, Mr. Wilson is dead. She tells her eldest son and the policeman's there, and he starts crying. And she says, no, come on, put yourself together. You know, because obviously it was embarrassing to uh, cry in front yeah. of people we didn't know. Yeah. Um, and there's this also devastating bit where two of the Mrs. Wilsons are fighting over who gets his body for the funeral. Okay. Um, it's wonderful. It's really, you I are going to love it. And I love that it has that, that True personal story. significance for Ruth Wilson in particular. And he was just... quite he was quite known. He was a novelist, Alexander Wilson, and he was a supposed spy, and he he was a man of reputation for for better words. Mm. So the how he managed to keep these lives in tandem for I mean forty years 
Well, thirty years. Anyway, yeah, it's absolutely brilliant. Can't wait. To I always catch think up on that, that about people who have those secret, exhausting marriages. I can barely organise a boyfriend and a few friends. But also, I mean, you know what I'm like about secrets. The guilt, the guilt of, you know, if I, for example, if I hadn't told you that those M&S prawn sandwiches had arrived and I kept them for myself, I, oh my, I'd have to go to confession. That's the Catholic in you. Yeah, it is the Catholic in me. <laughs> Lastly, my favourite thing I've read for a while. Oh, I can't wait to tell you about this because you're such a prude. A Guardian long read on poo. No, I don't want to talk By about Alex this. Blasdell. Everyone was talking about it at a dinner party I went to last week. It's up there with the long read on sandwiches. You loved that one, didn't you? Loved the sandwich one. And banter. Did you read that one? Yes, brilliant. Oh, is it time to get off the banter bus? If you haven't read this yet, I think it's from 2017, the banter one. The, so but what brilliant. about this poo one? The is poo it, one. Is it recent? Yes. The poo one is hooked on the fact that five million people have bought a squatty potty. Mm. since 2011 so we should explain what a squatty potty is for anyone who doesn't listen to American podcasts this is the only way I've found out about lifts potty. up your legs so that you can poop in the optimum position and apparently the, it, it is a sensational feeling of per- purgement um, it's it's like a little step, isn't it, that you have to yeah. put your feet on. I think I might buy one, actually. Oh, so, Pandora don't. So many people tweeted me saying, this is the best present my husband's ever bought me. Everyone's Some guy tweeted me being like, poo, I think. what is up with you Brits? How have you not got squatty potties yet? Like, it's the best poop you'll ever have. Oh, I don't like it. Apparently we're all pooping wrong. Um, it basically then goes on to the most beautifully lyrical piece of scatological writing I've ever read. So I shall read an extract here. <clears throat> it's like philosophy. Shitting, like death, is a great leveller. It renders beluga caviar indistinguishable from tinned ham. A duchess as creaturely as a dog. Even God's only son may be transformed by the act. The Sitocorinistas, an early Christian sect, believed in a double transubstantiation. Christ into the communion wafer and thence into dung. Though at different times and places the excrement of certain personages be they the Dalai Lama or those with healthy gut biomes, has been revered for its healing powers, shit itself is a strict egalitarian. Fecal-born disease knows no kings. Cholera can kill anyone. I'll be giving that one a miss, certainly. I'm going to get you your own squatty potty. No, I don't want one. A bespoke squatty potty that says Dolly's... Dolly's dung step. No, I don't like it. Dolly's poopy pal. We're all too obsessed with poo now. We need to just stop talking about it. Dolly's crap stool. That's enough of that, I think. Dolly's shit step. (laughs) Dolly's shit step. From Dolly's shit step onto Christmas music. A radio station in Cleveland, Ohio, has banned the popular, and I must say, very catchy Christmas song, Baby, It's Cold Outside, on the grounds that some listeners have found that its lyrics don't stand up in a post-Me Too world. Glenn Anderson, a host at the Star 102 station, blogged that although the song was written in a different era, the lyrics felt manipulative and wrong. The world we live in is extra sensitive now and people get easily offended. But in a world where Me Too has finally given women the voice they deserve, the song has no place, he wrote. God, I'm just surprised he's still blogging. (laughs) No people were blogging anymore. (laughs) I thought they were just Instagramming. No, it's big in Ohio blogging. Is it? Written by Frank Loessa in 1944, Baby It's Cold Outside has been covered by Lady Gaga, Michael Bublé, Tom Jones and Keris Matthews, and actors Will Ferrell and Zoe Deschanel in the movie Elf. The tune takes the form of a back-and-forth conversation where a man tries to persuade his female guest not to risk the journey home in bad weather, but to have another drink and spend the night with him instead. Normally performed as a duet between a man and a woman, it features lyrics such as... I simply must go. But baby, it's cold outside. The answer is no. Oh, but honey, it's cold outside. It actually makes a great karaoke song for couples. And us. <laughs> I've seen couples really nail the harmonies on the, this song after a fair bit of mulled wine. Dina Martin, the daughter of Rat Pack crooner Dean Martin. Who, I can see what they did there. <laughs> who is the singer who initially made the song famous, weighed in on the debate this week saying... I know my dad would be going insane right now. He would say, what's the matter with you? Get over it. It's just a fun song because he was so sweet, she said. He would never see anything bad in that. He was great guy, fun guy, nice, and he wouldn't want to do anything offensive. But that... 
that wasn't Dean Martin. Though this has just been outrageous. It's a sweet, flirty, fun holiday song. There's nothing bad about that song and it breaks my heart. Pandora, do you agree with Dina? I did a massive eye roll when I heard about this. Like the old fogies who go rather sadly, is there anything left I'm allowed to enjoy in this world? Um, aside from Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas, it's my favourite Christmas song, baby, it's cold outside. So on a personal level, I was behummed. I mean, I get what the OWs, I like to call them, overwokes, are getting at. He sounds a bit like he's coercing her. She's like, I got to go. And he's like, no, I'll stay here. But to be honest, I think that's placing a power on the words that isn't really there. I see it as, I know I should go, but this man's pretty wonderful. And he's like, I am pretty wonderful. And it's cold. And you're also wonderful. So stay and we'll have a nice time. I think if we start calling persuasions or suggestions coercion, you know, I have to go home. No, stay out for one more drink. Then we're relegating 70% of Christmas parties and festive dates <laughs> into really dicey territory. I think it keys into such a specific and nuanced conversation uh, that we're having at the moment about consent. And I'm glad that we're having it. The fact is, as much as we like to be academic about the nature of consent, it isn't as simple as modern discourse sometimes pretends it is. It's all about specific context and relationships and tone and power there is a big problem with a song about a man harassing a woman who is blatantly not into him forcing her to stay at his house because it's cold outside it's obvious to me that that's not what this song is about it's about a push and pull a playfulness a sort of role play of seducer and seduced that is traditionally male and female yeah, that push and pull, the beautiful flirtatious kind of friction. Particularly when you put it into the context of when it was written and recorded, when a single woman often wasn't meant to be with a man unchaperoned. In the lyrics, she worries what the neighbours might think. It's as much about her desires as it is about his. The context and tone is so important. It's a bit like, and please forgive me if Sarah Pascoe is listening to this because I'm paraphrasing and butchering her brilliant work because I watched it so long ago. But the comedian Sarah Pascoe did this brilliant bit about the lyrics to the Robin Thicke song, Blurred Lines. Mm. When you read those lyrics as this is coming from a man persuading a reluctant stranger to have sex with him. Wrong, gross, horrible. But what she said is like, when you think about your boyfriend or your husband pinching your bum at a barbecue and saying, I know you want it, maybe kind of hot. I get a bit sad when things like this make the news and it really did. It was all over the radio and the news shows and the panel shows and podcasts because I just feel like it really dents much more important parts of the movement to call grandiose on it, which are equal rights for women, consent, no harassment. Mm. This song, not worthy of all that time, mm. and I'm still going to play it. I think the question is, are we in a place culturally where there is room for all that sense of sensitivity to context, dynamic and tone? Is it that women have been abused and violated for so long that we now have to scrap everything and start again? And that perhaps means that it's potentially damaging for a young man to hear this song, misunderstand the tonal texture of it, think it's normalising the concept of forcing a woman into sex without her permission. Maybe that's what the concern is. That How many men, young men, listen to Baby It's Cold Outside and get... I just but it's not, gonna... it's not so much about young men specifically listening to it and then having an idea and inviting a woman around that night. I just think there are much worse pervasive <laughs> cultural influences. I, I agree, but just, just to think of the other side, I think... I think it's about cumulative. I think yeah. it's about the cumulative atmosphere that we're that we're trying to that we're trying to change. We're trying to change the weather. So, do you think we should ban baby? It's no, I don't at all. I think this is a, a hysterical reaction. But um, I do. I'm just trying to understand why people might think there could be, you know, potential disaster off the back of this. A line that many have taken particular umbrage with and um, I have to say, I often have felt uncomfortable hearing is when the female singer sings, say what's in this drink, which many have said is a reference to date rape and a perpetuation of rape culture. But today's producer Joel commented in that, that in the 40s and 50s it was a very common line, what's in this drink, um, about how strong it was. It didn't mean that it was spiked or that it could be spiked and that the woman had to check. It was quite a sort of fun, flirty, conversational patter, you know, mm. in the style of something else that we might say now. And it was actually sort of nothing to do with like scepticism from a world. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and actually 
I've I've heard people say it in reference to that line that it was a trope from 30s films that people would say when they found themselves telling the truth. So if you find yourself telling the truth, the, the sort of cute quip you would say is, say what's in this drink? And yeah, that like it's really important to take all that stuff um, into consideration before we just bin, you know, whole bits of culture. The comedian Jen Kirkman replied to the news on Twitter by saying, I'm so tired of this. The song seems odd now, not because it's about coercing sex, but about a woman who knows her reputation is ruined if she stays. She wanted to get down and stay over. (laughs) He is offering her an excuse she can use, but it's cold outside. And she's explaining to him that that excuse doesn't work when you're a woman who has to deal with what the neighbours think. The song has a lot to teach us about how society views women's sexuality, but the lesson of this song is not that it's about forcing a woman into sex. If you want to be outraged, be outraged about what the song is actually about the double standards in regards to sex that women face and how nothing much has changed and then enjoy the song it's a delight that's so interesting Mm. i love that speaking to the insider music historian thomas rice said the song was revolutionary and had a completely different meaning to what some are suggesting today While today we think of the protagonist as a woman trapped in an unsafe situation, at the time she was viewed as a modern woman acting on her newfound free will, said Rice. Even the simple fact of a woman remaining in a man's apartment, unchaperoned or living alone, was scandalous in real life. So already we are looking at a couple who are challenging middle-class values, says Rice, a professor at the University of Colorado. Interestingly, I saw that someone replied with the fact that the writer Frank Loessa wrote it for him and his wife to perform as a duo at parties in Hollywood, as it was normal at the time for couples to have a party trick to entertain and ensure invites and that his wife loved the song. God, I was born in the wrong era. A party <laughs> me and trick o- song. Maybe me and Ollie should do a tap dance. Please, I'm having some Christmas drinks next week, and I'm absolutely desperate. In fact, I'm I'm now expecting for you and Ollie to write and prepare some sort of party trick. Adieu. I think my first visit to your home. Yes, listeners, you heard that right. I've never visited a dolly abode is deserving of a song. Actually, a poem. I'll write you a poem, Nickers. Jen Kirkman also tweeted, it's sad because it's the insistence of younger people to read everything with a modern bent instead of learning about the past. And not in a rape was fine then way, but in a no, it was never about that. It should be treated as a thing to translate like Shakespeare almost. I think her saying that resonated with me as someone whose favorite bands and musicians from the 60s and 70s and often contain really uncomfortable lyrics. In one of my favourite Rolling Stones songs, Mick Jagger sings, I can tell you're only 15 years old, but I don't want to see your ID, honey. I still, in all honesty, love the song. I think if you read this as an artefact, evidence of a time when it was totally normal to fetishise underage girls, which we now can find appalling, rather than a sort of wistful romantic piece of nostalgia or something to be celebrated or emulated you can still enjoy the music we can't rewrite history and doing so to help our modern sensitivities is anti-progressive i think yeah that's a really good way of putting it we must use a past present translator not take like for like in fact i think google should add a past present translator and i think you can do the past and then some like (laughs) really cybery Gen Zer can do can do the present. Support for the Hilo comes from new online lifestyle brand Truly. Truly creates living, fashion, beauty and baby collections with high quality products at affordable prices. From cleverly designed weekend bags to a leather tassel that doubles as a phone charger, all of the products have been created to make the everyday easier. This week, we've been trying out our toast on Trudy's Constellation Tableware. I am disgustingly obsessed with crockery. Disgustingly. Are you disgustingly obsessed with crockery? Disgustingly. Is it an age thing? I think it might be. Turning 30. Da da da! Spending more time at home. Definitely. And also, crockery is so good right now. Truly's Constellation range comes in large plates and small plates and in midnight blue and ivory and they're perfect for cosy evening dinners all nestled side by side. What will you put on your Truly plates this festive season, doll? I love a nut roast me. Oh yeah. I've got a great recipe that's a fraction nut, majority gruyere. (laughs) Sign me up, I'm there. 
You can mix and match the ivory and charcoal plates and sizes to create a nice festive arrangement. The small plates are £18 and the larger ones are £40. They're a timeless design for Christmas dinner parties in years to come. Browse the full collection at truly.co.uk. Thank you very much to Truly. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This week, the comments of two female journalists, Polly Vernon and Daisy Buchanan, both published authors and respected culture journalists, caught our eye. Polly wrote about happy, righteous internet pile-in day for her Grazia column last week, a day which has happened every day, she says, for five years. What a fabulous five years they've been. A time to lump together, give equivalency to, and then dole out the same pile-in punishment to whoever, she writes, whether they're Harvey Weinstein or Jamie Oliver. I got it for writing a book, an offence punishable by righteous internet pile-on day because... Actually, I'm not sure why. I assume we deserve it. Why else would we have been attacked, lampooned, vilified with such alacrity by complete strangers? Why else would they e-scream so loudly about stupidity, incompetence, insensitivity, foolishness? The same day I read this, Daisy Buchanan tweeted, I am so, so sick of being abused on social media by strangers and just ignoring it, quote unquote, and being told to just ignore it. If you disagree with someone and then track them down and send them abusive messages, you should be embarrassed and ashamed. You should be stopped. What has become so broken? She asks. Why do so many people think this is okay? I think the idea of banter has become mutated and I know many people do it for attention. Why aren't they shown that there are consequences? Why is no one showing them that their behaviour is unacceptable? I have received abusive messages on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook because I talked about a Christmas song. Not Brexit or genocide or bringing back capital punishment. We keep ignoring this. We keep refusing to deal with the fact that any woman who does anything in the public eye should expect abuse from strangers. And the pressure is on us to be strong and shrug it off. There must be consequences for the bullies. So Daisy was more specifically talking about the abuse of women online, whereas, you know, Polly was talking about collective. But same mm. same idea threaded throughout there. I suspect these comments won't be surprising to anyone who works in the media and very possibly beyond it. Dolly, have you experienced abuse online? Yes, I have, sadly. When I had my dating column, it got really, really bad at one point when my self-esteem and general mental health was, for various reasons, at massive rock bottom and I just couldn't really deal with a bunch of men in an online forum discuss whether they would or wouldn't have sex with me depending on what weight I was. <laughs> it really wasn't doing great things for me at that time. Sadly, it started um, creeping in again now because it stopped when that dating column stopped. But now I have another weekly column for the Sunday Times style and I thought it might ease up because I'm not writing about my love life anymore, which seemed to attract massive misogyny much faster than anything else I've written about. And I'm just talking about general life stuff in my column now. But it still has started creeping back. A couple of weeks ago, I had a man write in detail under one of my columns about how I looked like a sex doll bought from Poundland without a drainage hole. <laughs> Fucking hell. I know, I know. Without a drainage hole. Yeah. Luckily, I have often wondered, actually, if you have a drainage hole. <laughs> Luckily, the comment moderators and the online editors of the Sunday Times are really, really fantastic and they're very fast-moving and will always remove abuse like this, which I'm very grateful for. But the fact is, as Daisy mentioned, that we need to work out how this explicit level of abuse has become just, like, such a normal way to react to female writing. I retweeted Daisy and added, there's an idea that if you put out content, quote-unquote, you should be ready to receive buckets of constructive bile sorry criticism if someone writes something truly vile go for it go for it if not can we all just chill out and lots of female journalists replied to me investigative newspaper reporters culture journalists 
fashion you know creatives saying that every time they pressed publish or send on a piece they felt totally sick i know that feeling so well i feel mm. sick every time i file or promote anything i write i think it's a really really clever way of silencing women there's so much that i don't write because I don't want to receive a pile-on of abuse. And as you know, I don't ever, ever, ever do TV for this reason either. I'll never be filmed. And it is mainly because I am so scared of the absolute torrent of attacks I might receive. And I, I just feel a really primal need to protect myself from that. Because you can't unsee that stuff. Mm. It's like, you know, people say just laugh it off, but it's like you can't like it has an effect it has an effect on you like seeing those words well, over I'm and still, over again. I know I was joking about it but I'm still shocked that someone would dehumanise you with that comment yeah that's he's, it he's, he's, take, he, he's literally removed your humanity yeah compared you to a inanimate pornified receptacle of male sperm because he's either not into your byline picture or you wrote something that he it's because he didn't write. like what I was writing yeah. he didn't like what I was writing I mean, it was absolutely extraordinary it was, it was... I haven't received um, you know I've received various things but I haven't received that kind of thing do you remember that years ago that one that I'm talking about that forum of men that were all talking mm. about me mm. I mean I was so I remember when you found out yeah it was like I was like 26 years old it was so upsetting and it's like it's dehumanizing and it's humiliating and it's embarrassing and it's disrespectful but it also takes something of you as a woman it's not it's it's so it's public it's, it's so shameful i hate it do you remember um when i did a facebook live uh, i used to have to do a facebook oh, live God, yeah. my column at sunday time yeah i remember and one woman this was a woman to be fair and uh, I don't think her English was great that's the excuse i like to use but she told me that i didn't know how to wear my face yeah i remember um, Actually, that was quite funny, and Ollie is obsessed with that. And any time I tell him something like, "Can you take out the bins?" It's like it's such a like. He'll say you don't know how to wear your face. It's so horrible though. There's no coming back from the insult. But it's also impossible to. I can't wear a new one, so I am (laughs) stuck with that criticism. It's so irreversibly cruel. (laughs) It is irreversible. I'm landed with just one. Um, I want to add a couple of important caveats here. I'm not saying, I don't think either of us are, that we have to shut down debate. I'm not saying we aren't allowed to entertain or receive alternative viewpoints. People are allowed to dislike my, your, any female or male's work. Um, It can fuck you off. You can think it's shit. I also think, to reference Daisy's point, that abusing someone who wrote a piece about a Christmas song is different to someone who writes a knowingly controversial piece or puts up a ridiculous Instagram picture. I'm sorry, but I don't conflate a really posy bikini picture and a piece of journalism as the same thing, much as I know everyone's keen to call themselves a writer these days. But this compulsion to tell someone, and not only that, tell them in a way that makes them feel disgusting and discredited, the old, you know, delete her from the internet, is new ground, scary ground, and fostered by the internet's as often mentioned, empathy deficit. What's worrying for me more and more is how we're becoming, myself included in this, so desensitised to it. I told a male friend about those comments recently and he laughed and said, sorry, but that man's just an idiot and you shouldn't read comments and you just shouldn't get upset. And for a moment I felt a bit embarrassed that I had confided in him that it had upset me, like I was acting like a sort of triggered snowflake. And I don't think of myself as a precious sort of person. But then I reassessed my reaction and I thought, do you know what, no, I'm fine. I'm fine with being someone who finds it upsetting and maybe even psychologically a bit of, you know, of a mind fuck to have men routinely publicly write to me in this way in response to my mostly lighthearted musings on life. I don't want to be someone who thinks that that's a normal way to be spoken to. I want to aspire to more for myself. I'm worth more than that. And we need to take ourselves seriously and we need to not integrate this frankly fucking psychotic behavior into just part of the online world. I think that you'd be much more relaxed if you've had a drainage hole, quite frankly. You just had some way of getting all this out. (laughs) Turns out it's not just us being snowflakes. Amnesty International have now defined abuse online as a human rights violation. One in five women in the UK have faced abuse online. I'm actually amazed that it's that low. Well, I think it's probably because a lot of women aren't online, really. Their digital footprint could be tiny or non-existent, like my mum. Not a lot of women, Mm. but most women in their 70s don't have... They have email, but Mm. they don't have Facebook, Twitter, 
Instagram. Oh my God, have I told you my favourite mum Facebook thing? No. My mum disappeared into the room with, her, with the computer when I was at home a few years ago and she was like being on Facebook for hours. And then she came out and she was like biting her nail really nervously. She was like, darling. I said, what? She said, what does it mean if Linda's told me to check my privilege? <laughs> You're joking. No. Linda, very woke. <laughs> I think Polly's final words for her column are the most meaningful takeaway for me um, from this. I suppose in the future, when contemplating taking part in a righteous internet pile-in day, we could pause to ask if the latest subject is deserving of such treatment, distinguished between, say, a righteous internet pile-in day on a rapist and one directed at a daft student with a crush or a woman who's not great with money. Consider what might happen to them emotionally if we proceed. Wonder if one day they might be us. I couldn't agree with her more. Thank you very much for listening to The Hilo. You can rate, review and subscribe on iTunes. It helps boost us in the charts and helps other people to find us. You can email us, thehiloshow at gmail.com. You can write to us now so that your letters will get put in ye old mailbag. I'd like you to fasten it with a wax seal. Oh, there must be a wax seal. There must be a wax seal. Let's just get this completely clear now. With your family crest (laughs) in it. And if you don't have one, make one. And it has to be a quill and ink. Yes. Aquila Nink, please. Calligraphy only. And if you send those to uh, Grace O'Leary, independent talent, and the address will be in uh, the show notes. And if you can't find the show notes, then you can't write to us, and that's the end of that. And you can tweet us at The Hilo Show. Bye-bye. Please tune in next week because I'm making Christmas cocktails for Pandora and DJ CJ. <laughs> Bye. Bye.